Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and help the planet. And today we go to Paris, France, where we're speaking with Professor Eva Maria Geigel, who is a paleogeneticist who recently published information about the domestication of cats. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Geigel. Hello. And uh, you're at the Jacques Minaud National Research Center in Paris, or in France. It's a national research laboratory in France, correct? Yes, it is an institute of molecular and cellular biology belonging to the French National Research Center, the CNRS, which is uh, a center that encompasses all scientific domains and, and fields. And your work in particular has been as a paleogeneticist are some of the more intriguing discoveries and intriguing jobs out there because you're piecing things together from biological molecules, from DNA evidence in some cases, in many cases, that is um, sometimes coming from uh, maybe preserved specimens or, um, in this case, mummies when we talk about cats. Is this becoming a bigger area with time? Yes, it became a big area with the... Uh, with when genomics actually took off. So since we are able to sequence whole genomes, and this is also possible through these new techniques to do, in some cases, in ancient calcified tissues from organisms that have lived in the past. So this was really a, a new field. But an area that was ready to explode once the uh, technology was there to support it, right? I mean, it's great questions. And and when I think about this particular area, um, I think this is the area I would have gone into. So the field of paleogenetics is around 30 years old, but genomics we are doing since, well, maximum, well, not even 10 years. I I would say the first real genome uh, was published in 2010. This was the Neanderthal genome. 
Yes, and, and that one's pretty exciting. And I think about that and uh, what's been done from the mammoth. And what, what, what are some other really interesting ancient ones that have come from old specimens? I would say the whole peopling history of uh, Eurasia and also America and Australia uh, has been reconstructed through ancient genomes now. We have an, uh, we know amazing, we have an amazing uh, knowledge, uh, amount of knowledge uh, how peopling of the, of the continents happened over the last, let's say, 20,000 years or 30,000 years. So this is maybe the, the area that is the most exciting for the great public, for them. Uh, but also domestication is also a very interesting area. Well, humans are very self-centered, so everything that has to do with humans is much more interesting than if you just analyze um, ancient populations of animals or plants that are not uh, related to humans. We, for example, we also study uh, ancient uh, populations that responded to climate change. But this was not related to humans, so there is a little less interest of the large public, I would say. Well, the other really interesting edge of this that relates to your current research comes from the domestication of animals that really were happening was happening at the same time that humans were um, radiating and, and changing through time. They were doing this in concert with dogs and cats. And some of our other domesticated um, animals, the paper that was discussed in June of 2017, really focused upon cats and their coming into contact with humans and how they change through time. But how did that really occur? I mean, I think about cats, I think of the large felines and then maybe the small cats. Uh, How related are they really? And um, when did those divergences really happen? Well, the the large cats are related. It's, it's a family. It's an it's, it's a big group of of animals. But we did our studies on the small cat that gave the domestic cat. So we studied wild cats and domestic cats. Wild cats are uh, a specific uh, species, which is Felis silvestris, and there are five subspecies that are in Europe, in Asia, and in Africa. And only one of the subspecies, the one from northern Africa and southwest Asia, was domesticated and is the ancestor of all domestic cats that we have all around the world nowadays. So can some of those domestic cats be traced back to either the Asian or the African subspecies, or were they um, really more from one or the other? Well, this is actually what we found through our study. So what we found was that we we looked at the what we call phylogeography, so the pattern, the population structure of wildcats before the Neolithic. Neolithic is the time when humans in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East started to do farming and to domesticate animals. So before this time, we wanted to know how were the wildcats in the different areas so that we would see how this maybe changed through domestication. And so we found that in Europe, there was in the West, the European wildcat. Mm -hmm. And in 
Southwest Asia, there was the Libica, Felicivestus libica, another subspecies of the wild cat that was endemic in this area. And what do we know about the ways that humans first came in contact with cats or that they came in contact with us? Then with the onset of the Neolithic, with when the people started to do agriculture and the first farmers migrated out of Anatolia into Europe, this happened around 7,000 years ago, we see this Anatolian wild cat or cat, we don't know how, whether it was wild or not now, this cat from Anatolia popping up in archaeological sites that belong to these first farmers that colonized Europe. So from this we can deduce that the cat at this time came closer to human settlements because humans started to do agriculture to accumulate grains and these grains of course attracted rodents and so cats that were hungry saw these rodents and came closer to the settlements where these grain accumulations were and fed on the rodents and these were the cats probably that were the least shy and the, those who were inclined to tolerate humans and other cats because you have to know that the wild cat is a solitary animal that does not look for humans and does not look for other cats but rather lives as completely alone at least when it's not mating and when it's not uh, well the females when they have the youngs are of course with the with the kittens but apart from this period, they live alone. And so those cats that changed a little bit their behavior became tamed and lived together with humans. And so also migrated with humans on their trips, their migrations into other areas which they started about 7,000 years ago. This of course we deduce that from what we know from archaeological the archaeological knowledge the context and what we know what we saw in our data where we analyzed a genetic marker that tells us the lineage the maternal lineage that the cat belonged to. So we could distinguish the European cat from these Southwest Asian and North North uh, yeah Northeast African wild cat, and we could see that this cat started to move around when humans started to move around, and so and later. So this was the the Southwest Asian cat before, and then we also analyzed more recent uh, bones and mummies from Egypt. And there, there was another type, mitochondrial type, so another genetic type, lineage, uh, that we had not seen in other areas. So, and this Egyptian cat, or Egyptian lineage, in the centuries that followed our discovery, so from the, these mummies that were belonged to the Ptolemaic period, in later periods, during the Roman periods in Anatolia and then in Iran and in the Levant and in Europe and later in the Middle e Ages in Viking sites, this Egyptian cat appears in the archaeological sites 
and appears at high number, at a number that is so high that the local cat, the Anatolian cat, for example, it was 50-50. So we have about 50% Anatolian lineage and 50% Egyptian lineage. So, so the Egyptian cat bred over the ancient world because probably, and this we deduce now from the historical context, that these cats were um, boarded the ships and were shipped around with the seafarers, with the seafarers that were merchants and traders and raiders and soldiers. And so they conquered the world together with these seafarers. Um, you mentioned talking about cats in Egypt and cats that were mummified. How frequent was it that you would find a mummified cat or... Um, why did the Egyptians mummify them to begin with? The cat had a very special position in the Egyptian society. Already in the second, 2000 BC, we have the, in the iconography of Egypt, we see the cat. We see the cat in the, in the marshes hunting with humans. We see the cat uh, slaughtering the snake that is threatening the sun god Ra. So helping the sun to rise again in the morning, so it became a, a, a goddess, became a, a yeah a divine animal, and was e extremely important to the uh, Egyptian ancient Egyptian society. So most of the mummified cats come from the Ptolemaic period, uh, where more and more cats were mummified. And there were millions of cats. Actually, so many cat, mummified cats were found in the 19th century and that the English took them to England and made um, uh, fertilizer out of it. <laughs> it seems like a rather um, anticlimactic end to finding these you know, artifactual mummified cats. It would seem like they would have uh, some better purpose than fertilizer. <laughs> yeah, well, but there were millions and so at the time, they were, since there were so many, they just used them as fertilizers. Of course, nowadays they are precious, and so they are kept in museums. And when they come up in a, in a new excavation from a tomb, of course they are kept then in, probably kept in Egypt anyway, because Egypt doesn't let any archaeological material leave the country anymore. But the, the mummified cats that are now in the museums in Europe and in America and uh, elsewhere in the world, they are well kept, of course. Now, I've worked with DNA for decades, and I know it's a fairly resilient molecule, but you're talking about... Uh, something that's been basically fossilized. How hard is it to work with this ancient DNA? It is not easy to uh, analyze ancient DNA. Ancient DNA, DNA is very quickly and very profoundly degraded after the death of, uh, of an animal or of a human. Immediately after death, the degradation process starts and DNA gets heavily degraded and it remains only if something remains after hundreds of years or thousands of years, it's very, very little. So the quantity is very low and the DNA fragments are very short. Uh, so it is a technical challenge to analyze this DNA. And the hotter the climate is in which uh, the skeletal remains are preserved, the less DNA is preserved. And Egypt is very hot. So in Egypt, normally... DNA is extremely poorly preserved. 
so we analyzed almost 80 cats, 80 mummies, and only five or six gave results. So all the others did not have DNA anymore in the part that we analyzed together with Claudio Ottoni, who is the first author on our study. So uh, we we have real problems in this area, also in the Levant, in Syria. So in these hot countries that are extremely interesting to analyze because our society started to, to be constructed in this area. You know, agriculture and domestication started in the Fertile Crescent, which is the north of Syria, the southeast of Turkey, down to the Ir- Iraq, and so the uh, Mesopotamia, and then also Egypt. And these are all very hot areas. But it would be extremely interesting to analyze all the, um, the bones from these various domestic animals and wild animals and for humans. We now recently... Uh, Our community found out that there is one particular bone, which is the petrous bone, which is the bone that uh, protects the inner ear, that is extremely dense and where DNA is well preserved. So there the chance to get some DNA is higher. But we did not have a single one of those because cat remains are scarce. So it's rare to find cat in archaeological sites. Why? Because, as I said already at the beginning, uh, in paleontological science, you you do not find it because it's a solitary animal. So when it dies, it will, and it's a small animal. When it dies, you will not find the bones. In archaeological sites, which are the sites of human occupation, uh, you find the refuse of uh, human uh, nutrition. So the animals that were eaten, the cat was not really eaten. It was never a subsistence animal. It might have been eaten occasionally, but it was certainly not hunted to be eaten. It was not uh, maybe sometimes by accident hunted for the fur, but it was certainly not an animal that was accumulated in archaeological sites so that you find a lot of bones. So you find then with time as the cat became tamer and entered the human niche and lived with the human uh, with human in the settlements you find more and more bones but uh, the bones are small they are fragile dna is not very well preserved in general and uh, we did not have a single of these precious petrous bones that would have given us much more dna information as we had uh, could obtain so far Well, this is a good spot to take a break today. We're talking with Professor Eva Maria Geigel from the University of Paris at Diderot, which is the uh, Jacques Monod Institute. Jacques Monod being one of the uh, founders of the Lac Operon, (laughs) for those of you who know that stuff. We'll be right back with the Talking Biotech Podcast. The Talking Biotech Podcast is approaching a podcast milestone the 100th episode. The reviews are energizing and the wide listenership spurs us on to continue to produce improved and compelling podcast material into the next 100 episodes. At this rate, we're projected to reach the 1,000th episode in November of 2034. 
Now, based on your emails, the 100th episode will be an interview with Dr. Kevin Folta, the originator and one of the Talking Biotech hosts. If you have questions, please mail them to talkingbiotech at gmail.com or submit them on Twitter at Talking Biotech. The special episode will be hosted by Chris Barbie. Most of all, thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend and helping us share the wonderful stories of science that can help people and help the planet. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast, today talking with Professor Ava Maria Geigel, a paleogeneticist who's using DNA evidence to identify relationships about the domestication of cats. And so when you talk about genetic markers and the genes that you can learn from, from, say, a mummified cat, these are all mitochondrial DNA. Um, is, is that right? Yeah. This, we, we analyzed, well, we had mainly the mitochondrial marker, which is a neutral marker that is transmitted from the mother to the offspring. So we see the maternal lineage, which is very nice to... Uh, retrace, trace back the migrations of populations. But it does not give us a clue about the appearance or the physiology or the behavior of an animal or of cat or for human or whatever. Um, so for that, we need to have the information of the genome, the nuclear genome. And we only analyzed one, in this particular study now, we analyzed one marker. And this is a marker that gives the, the coat pattern. So uh, the wildcats are striped, so have uh, little dots and stripes. Uh, and this is encoded by a gene that is well characterized biochemically. And there, if there is in this gene a mutation, a single point mutation, so which means one of the units is changed, then we change, in the cat, there is a change of the pattern from tabby striped, which is called uh, the mackerel, like, because it's like a mackerel, uh, to the blotched. And nowadays, many domestic cats have this blotched pattern, which is more the patchy type. And so, since this is a single mutation, which is well characterized and that causes this change in the pattern, we analyzed this also in, our, in all these cats that we had analyzed, in these cat remains. And we saw that this appears very late, actually, very late in the domestication process of cats. It was only at the f uh, around the 13th century that we saw it in Southwest Asia, in one cat appear and then in the Ottoman Empire to spread out. So then we have more cats in Southwest Asia and in Europe that carry this blotched tab, uh, pattern. So from this we can deduce that actually at the beginning, or we can deduce, we can hypothesize, take this as, an, as a suggestion that or indication that cats were not really selected for specific physical markers, so that the cats, and you see that also the cat nowadays, a, a, a domestic cat, still looks pretty much like a wild cat. It is even for many cats difficult to distinguish a wild cat from a domestic cat. 
except you have the fancy breeds or the Persian cat or the Siam cat. So there are a few breeds. Most of them are very recent from the 19th or 20th century, except for the Siam cat. Um, so in the past, the cats did not change. And when you look at the iconography of Egypt or Greece or of Rome, then you see that the cat really looks like our cat and looks like the wild cat. So for a long time, probably humans did not change anything about the cat. They did not select and breed the cats intentionally because I think the cat was perfect the way it was. <laughs> the cat was a small animal. It was not a dangerous animal, so you did not have to change it a lot. It had to be less shy and a little bit less aggressive so that it could live with humans. So this was a certain selection for more sociable and docile, maybe more tamed cats. And we see that in the genome as well. Uh, so in the nuclear genome of present day cats. But the cats did all oh, from the very beginning. They did what they were supposed to do. They killed rodents, they ate the rodents, they killed snakes and scorpions, so these venomous animals that were really dangerous, especially in Egypt and, and probably in the Levant, so these were uh, animals that had an impact on the social life of, of the people in this area, and they killed all these rodents that were really, really um, a danger and, and caused a lot of economic losses of famines, but also carried diseases. So this, the cat was from the very beginning a very, very useful animal. And so, and it was perfect. It didn't have to do, it didn't have to be changed in order to do what it was supposed to do. So that's my explanation why the cat is still pretty much the same as it was at the beginning compared to the dog that changed a lot and the dogs when you compare the dogs that we have to the wolves you see a large variety of different shapes of different behaviors of different sizes and in in fact that the dog was also selected and bred for different tasks to carry out you have the working dog, the hunting dog for birds, the hunting dog for rabbits. The, so different preys for different tasks. Uh, you had different breeds. And this is not the case for the, for the cats. The cats do what they always did. They hunted rodents and birds and, and snakes and behave even today pretty much as they behaved in the past, except for the very recent time when they became really, well, I always say couch potatoes, and when they were really um, confined to the urban environment and to apartments. And maybe <laughs> they got a bit crazy now when you look at all the internet cats. <laughs> well, that's, that's one really interesting part of this, is that uh, some people, just in preparing for today's interview, even said that cats really haven't been domesticated, that they still maintain all, many of their wild traits and their behaviors are still that of wild cats, that they've just uh, kind of selected themselves to be able to tolerate humans. <laughs> but this is domestication because what what changed is... This behavior, and this is crucial, I mean, the, the wild cat is, as I said before, is a solitary animal, and the domestic cat is not. 
So the domestic cat likes to be with other cats. The domestic cat has no problem to be with humans, and a wild cat would not. Well, I guess the other big question is, if you look at um, modern-day, so extant uh, cats, uh, what else can we learn from DNA that tells us about the genes and tendencies, or the genes that correlate or associate with tendencies of domestication? Do we understand the genetics and the uh, the genetic changes that change the behaviors of those cats? We start to understand something about the genetic changes. We know that uh, there is what we call the domestic uh, domestication syndrome. So these are genes that are involved in the development and functioning of the neural crest system, which gives the central uh, nervous system, the brain and um, the, the nerves. And, and this is changed during the pro- domestication process in all domestic animals, also in the cats. And these uh, genes or alleles have pleiotropic effects. That means it's not only one feature that is changed, but other features can be changed just by uh, at the same time without being selected for. For example, there are uh, experiments were done already 30 or 50 years ago in Russia where foxes that are not domesticated so far were selected for in a in a, in a fenced area so they were kept and only those were bred that were more, the most docile and over a very short generation time like five generations uh, one could already notice that the behavior had changed but not only the behavior had changed, also the appearance had changed. So they became floppy ears and they became spots on the fur and this kind of uh, changes in the appearance and the f- physical appearance that we know from other domestic animals as well, like, like dogs or cows or uh, horses. And so there are changes that are probably first... Um, targeted on the behavior, but that have also other consequences on the physiology and the physical appearance. Does any of that come from inbreeding or maybe, you know, especially diseases that may be amplified as cats were brought into human control, um, that maybe just those kinds of breeding tendencies tended to bring out into more familiar presence? Well, recently, yeah, recently there there are clearly defined uh, diseases in cats that are related to certain breeds. Yeah, this is known. There are groups that work on it. For example, Leslie Lyons in uh, Missouri University, who is an expert on uh, in this field. Um, at the time, in prehistoric time, we don't know that. We don't know how this happened and uh, whether there was any impact on disease. Uh, frequency uh, amongst cats. So what's next for this particular line of research? Do you have additional places that you would like to investigate or other locations where maybe you could find those types of bones to be able to do that research? Yeah, this would be great to find this type of bones. So, yeah, of course, this has to be done 
we we collaborate with uh, archaeologists and archaeologists, so people who analyze these bones, excavate the bones, excavate the archaeological sites and excavate the bones and then analyze the bones morphologically. And these archaeologists then are interested in working together with us in order to get the genetic information. So what we want to do now is, of course, to get our hands on the genomes in order to tell the whole story, because now we have the story that is told from the maternal lineages and from this one nuclear marker that is the code pattern, but we would like to know more. So in the genetic analyses of ancient DNA, is there evidence of hybridization between the wild cats and the early domestic cats? And how much interbreeding was there? They certainly interbred. We know that. We know that even nowadays there is interbreeding between wild and domestic cat. In Europe, maybe pro uh, certainly less. But in the Middle East, I think this still happens quite a lot if there, if there are wild cats around. So we would like to see how much took place of this interbreeding and was there a tendency in some areas more than in others and what's the uh, influence on the genomes that we have uh, in modern day cats. Of course, to, to tell the whole process, in, to refine the the details of the domestication process, so to know exactly at which time uh, was the cat really tamed? Was was it the ancient the ancient Egyptians? Did they start that already two thousand years before Christ, or did they start later? This kind of refinement would be interesting to do. And if people wanted to learn more about the research or more about your program, uh, where would they look? In the press, <laughs> just to cat, and you will find a lot of uh, a lot of uh, journal articles uh, all around. We don't have a website on that. Okay, that was, that, I guess that was my big question. So, yeah. no, very good. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And that was Professor Eva Maria Geigel from the Jacques Minaud Institute in Paris, France, talking about domestication of cats and the hints that we get from the evidence that we find inside either mummified remains or other modern-day cats and how they relate to their wild antecedents. So hopefully you like this particular episode of the podcast, and if you do, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us have a better presence and... Um, more compelling stature in the list of growing number of podcasts and uh, makes us an easier choice for people who are interested in more scientific information. Write a review on iTunes, tell a friend, and share the information that we talk about here because it's really exciting to see what we can do with modern technology to start to understand where life came from and how humans uh, came in contact with it in the case of cats. My name's Kevin Folta. Thank you for joining and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools.
With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.